Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Back in the 90s, in the town of Brandon, the 4th of July committee was looking for a way to help pay for their yearly parade. The town gave us $500, then we had to earn the rest of the money for the bands and the fireworks and all of that. This is Joan Thomas. She's a longtime Brandon resident. She was chair of the 4th of July committee in those years. And she got an idea for a fundraiser. We lined up, it was either seven or eight homes, seven I think, homes and one was a barn to show these secret spaces, which were attics, cellars, holding rooms, and a tunnel entrance. A walking tour of these secret spaces, little cubbies and compartments that homeowners believed had been part of the Underground Railroad. You know the story. African-Americans who escaped from slavery in the South traveled north, getting help from people along the way. In the years before the Civil War, fugitive slaves supposedly hid in Brandon in these houses on the tour. This was all based on oral history. This was information that was passed from one family down to the next and then on to the neighbors. Joan worked with the head of the Brandon Area Chamber of Commerce to promote the heck out of the tour. It got picked up by the New York Times travel section. And it was a huge success. Bernie Carr is the current head of Brandon's Chamber of Commerce. Back then, he was a board member. The various houses that had the rooms opened up their houses, let people go in their basements and their attics and their sheds and their shanties. It was just amazing. The first year we sold out, there were so many people from out of state uh, that had come. It was something. <laughs> we made six or seven hundred dollars on it for a chamber event, which was, you know, a lot of money. We only charged five dollars for the tickets, and I think we could have charged twenty-five, and we would have still sold as many. The first tour was in the summer of 1995. It was such a success that Brandon held one again in '96. That year, they also sold a little cookbook with photos of the homes on the tour and old family recipes. And that too was a big seller. There was a third tour in 97, also very popular, but it was the last. I think the people with the houses decided they'd had enough of people (laughs) coming through their houses and walking through everything. These days, every once in a while, someone will float the idea of bringing the tour back. But according to Kevin Thornton, that's a very bad idea. I think people would say, you know, oh, we'd love to do this again. This is like the best fundraiser we ever had. But, you know, we really can't do it honestly. Kevin is a historian. He moved to town after the tours ended, but he says the whole Underground Railroad thing here is way overblown. 
as far as he can tell, there's only one piece of evidence of runaway slaves hiding in Brandon. It came from a local abolitionist named Jedediah Holcomb. He wrote a letter to an, a national anti-slavery paper, and it's very coy. He says something like, uh, you know, there are rumors of certain people coming through town and, and being hidden here, and I'm not going to deny them, and that, that's all he says. That, oh, so, and that's, that's like the best you have, it's just that little aside that he makes. Yeah. There definitely was a strong anti-slavery movement in Brandon, and I think people confuse that with the Underground Railroad pretty extensively. So there's this kind of mishmash of truth and rumor and wishful thinking that leads to this notion that every old house is, uh, you know, a haven for runaway slaves, and, you know, it just wasn't happening. I and many others disagree with them. Joan Thomas, the original tour organizer has heard Kevin's critique, and she doesn't buy it. Just from all the stories that we have heard about the slaves running away and whatever, I just can't believe that it's not true. So who's right? This month on the podcast, rumors, records, and the Underground Railroad in Vermont. Brave Little State, BPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy. This is a show about curiosity. Every month, we take on a question about Vermont that's been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. Hi, my name is Carly Krolik. I live in Charlotte, Vermont. This month's winner? Was there an underground railroad in Vermont? A question about how local legend squares with the historical record. What do we know about the existence of a system to help slaves escape toward Canada? And were escaped slaves able to settle and live here openly? Where is the line between myth and truth? And whose voices are missing from the history? We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. A lot of this episode is going to be focused on myth-busting. But before we get to the Underground Railroad myths, we need to talk about a Vermont myth you might have in your head. Maybe you think that because we were the first state to abolish slavery in 1777, that we were always a shining bastion of freedom and abolition. Not quite. Slavery still continued on the ground in some ways. Harvey Amani Whitfield is a professor of history at the University of Vermont. The reason why I love this topic and the reason why I love Vermont history is because of the complexity and the nuance. I mean, if you're a black person, you're living in Vermont in the 1790s, you could own property, you could take a white person to court, but at the very same time, you could be kidnapped or re-enslaved. Amani wrote a book about this called The Problem of Slavery in Early Vermont. It came out in 2014, and this audio is from a VPR interview he did back then. He said that even though abolition was enshrined in Vermont's constitution... It wasn't enforced. Owners of slaves just sort of subverted it, ignored it. Plus, there was a loophole that allowed people to continue to enslave children. Amani found examples of this stuff all the way up into the 1810s. So that's one thing. Slavery had a foothold here. 
Another thing to know is that Vermonters had complicated views about all this. Here's Vermont historian Ray Zerbliss. Lots of people, I think, of, of goodwill in the antebellum period are on the fence. Slavery is reprehensible, but the destruction of the Union would be a terrible outcome. So people we would consider, uh, as they would say, gentlemen of property and standing, uh, upstanding members of the community, are very often on the side of a more temperate middle ground. This stuff could take up an entire episode. But just keep it in mind as we try to answer Carly's questions about the Underground Railroad. Because the history plays out in front of a backdrop that, to use Amani Whitfield's words, is full of nuance. That's actually a key word for this story. Nuance, nuance. <laughs> and this is where we get to some Underground Railroad myths. So I'm just saying who I am. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm Jane Williamson. I'm the director at Rugby Museum. Rokeby Museum is in Ferrisburg, and you can't really tell this story without going there. Could you paint the picture? Where are we sitting right now? Okay, we are sitting in the south room in the house at Rokeby Museum. Rokeby was the home and sheep farm of the Robinson family. They were Quakers. Uh, there were four generations of the family who lived here. One of those generations featured a husband and wife named Rowland and Rachel. They were abolitionists, and they sheltered or aided dozens of fugitive slaves here on the farm. This happened in the 1830s and the 1840s. Rokeby's connection to the Underground Railroad is so legit that the museum is a national historic landmark. But Jane says that people come here looking for a different story than the one the museum actually tells. The lantern in the window, the hidden room, the loose floorboard. She says people are kind of obsessed with hiding places, like in Brandon because there's this popular image of slave catchers prowling around the countryside looking for fugitives. But there's no evidence that that happened in Vermont. We're too far north. So nobody was hiding here. That's manifestly clear. And there's no reason to think anybody would have been hiding anywhere else in Vermont. Um, but people have, you know, this just ingrained, the depth of this story and people's thinking. So anytime they see anything, um, in the hall under the staircase, we have a closet, and they go, oh, oh, that's where they hid the fugitive slaves, and that, you know, it's just everything people see, that's the first thing they think of. It's a root cellar. It's a cistern. We're in the business of bursting people's balloons. Brink. But I think that what we give them is actually more interesting. Take the story of a man named Jesse. Documents show he was enslaved on a small farm in North Carolina by a man named Joseph Elliott. When Joseph died, his son Ephraim basically inherited Jesse. There are tax records and estate papers that show all this. And then, at a certain point, Jesse is not in the North Carolina documents anymore. It appears that Jesse was quite a capable person because he managed to get from Perquimans County in northeastern North Carolina all the way to northwestern Vermont. I think he must have gone by boat, and that was the fast way. I mean, if you got on a boat, you know, you could be up in Boston Harbor. Jesse ended up right here, in Ferrisburg. The Robinsons gave him a job on their farm and paid him money for his work. And we know that because he saved up $150. And if you were working as a farm laborer in Vermont in 1837 and you earned $150, that would be a lot of money. This helps answer part of Carly's question about whether escaped slaves could live here openly. Jane figures if Jesse was working on the farm... Obviously he wasn't in hiding. So anyway... 
Jesse was working for a wage, and he saved up 150 bucks. And he saved it for a very specific purpose. He wanted to buy his freedom from Ephraim Elliott, the slave owner he ran away from. The other part of this story is that Ephraim and Jesse were almost the same age. Jane says that means they'd probably grown up playing together on the farm in North Carolina. So when Ephraim gets a letter from Rowland Robinson, the owner of Rokeby, about Jesse wanting to buy his freedom, Ephraim's reaction isn't what you'd think. His response to Rowland is like, oh, you know, Jesse was a man I had great regard for. I'm in hopes that he will do well. If he would like to come back, I would love to see him. Ephraim doesn't send someone to recapture Jesse. He wishes him well. Jane thinks there was something else going on here, too. She says, look, Jesse was savvy enough to get himself out of slavery. Ephraim Elliot, on the other hand, never really acquired much more land than what he inherited from his father. Ephraim maybe wasn't the greatest businessman. He was also illiterate. I looked at a number of documents, which he marked with an X. So there seems to be some difference in how capable they were, or how ambitious, or whatever kind of the agency of the two guys was askew. So, you know, Jesse may have just thought, this guy's going nowhere, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Who knows? But he did something very hard. This is what Jane means when she talks about nuance. And really make it less about these kind of cardboard cartoon characters who, you know, do the same thing in every story and are very, they're not very deep. They're not very, you know, nuanced. There's like no complexity there. They're just wonderful white people and evil slave catchers. And in those stories, the slave loses out. So that's not good because they're the star of the story. I often say that many of these people manage to get themselves completely out of slavery and into the North, and all of a sudden they seem to fall apart and turn into these frightened, shivering fugitives. Now, they may be cold, and they may be frightened, but it has not stopped them from moving through the land to get to freedom. This is Dr. Cheryl Jennifer LaRoche. She's an archaeologist and historian, and she teaches at the University of Maryland. She's also the author of a book called Free Black Communities and the Underground Railroad, The Geography of Resistance. Cheryl makes an important point about how the history of the Underground Railroad is told. She says it's really one-sided. We have this uh, inequality in access to literacy. And so many of the people who worked on the Underground Railroad, Quakers, for example, who are diarists, who write, as opposed to a people who have been legislated into not being able to read or write. So there is a great unevenness in the record that's left behind. This is definitely true at Rokeby, where generations of very literate Robinsons left behind 15,000 letters. But there's nothing written by Jesse or any of the other fugitives who passed through. So much of African-American history is on the cutting room floor. That being said, there are a handful of free Black Vermonters who show up in a big state report about Vermont's Underground Railroad. And at least one of them was literate. Luden Langley. He's an African-American man, very active, a, a real letter writer to the newspapers on abolition. Luden Langley lived in Hinesburg, in a community of African-American farmers known as Lincoln Hill. And along the way, he happens to mention in passing that he is uh, putting up a, a, a fugitive this is Ray Zerbliss, the historian we heard from earlier. And back in 1996, in the era of Brandon's walking tours, 
Ray published an exhaustive study of all the Vermont Underground Railroad activity he could find, from hard records to oral histories. There were five categories of ratings from this is absolutely an Underground Railroad um, identified structure or this is a person who we absolutely can prove was active on the road to at the bottom a person or place where there is no evidence and only a, you know, a whisper of a possibility. Ray did a huge survey of 174 people and sites for his report. And he found hard proof that 25 Vermonters were Underground Railroad activists. This was category A. For me, the the idea was these are folks that I could have convicted in a court of law. The category A activists were Quakers, clergy, free blacks, and they were mostly spread along what today is Vermont's Route 7 corridor from Bennington to St. Albans. People and sites in categories B through E get harder to prove and more spread out across the state. One Category A activist in Ray's report is in Montpelier, a guy with a great name. Yeah, Chauncey Knapp. Another great thing about Chauncey Knapp is that he actually sheltered a fugitive slave when he was Vermont's Secretary of State. There's a politician who's doing something, you know. (laughs) This was in 1838. Chauncey Knapp helped out a young man named Charles Nelson. Charles hadn't traveled on his own all the way up from the south. He'd actually been brought along on his master's honeymoon to Niagara Falls. Who thought in 1838 that that was a uh, you know, place to honeymoon, but apparently it was. So Charles escaped from the hotel and ended up at Rokeby with the Robinson family. They sent Charles to Knapp, and Knapp wrote a very jaunty letter back to the Robinsons to say that uh, Charles had indeed arrived safely and that they were sitting in his office, Secretary of State's office in the State House. This is the old State House before the fire. But, um, you know, how wonderful to think of this teenager newly having escaped from slavery and being there in the State House. Eventually, Chauncey Knapp helped Charles get an apprenticeship with a printer in Montpelier. The moving thing about that for me is that Knapp himself, uh, when he was a boy, his father had walked him down to Montpelier and apprenticed him in the trade of printing. So in uh, helping Charles out, he was, in a sense, trying to give him, you might say, the same start that his father had given him. Another example of a former slave living openly in Vermont. Now, Ray is clear that Vermont's Underground Railroad was not a highly organized network. Some of the activity appears to have been random, and some was more based on loose affiliations. We can see this in another piece of evidence. It's written by a young Bennington girl named Jane Hicks, And it's Ray's favorite document. And the reason is that Jane is uh, about, um, I'm thinking, 12 years old in 1843. She's writing to her older sister. And she says this. She says, Friday evening, my dear sister, it rains very hard here. I was interrupted last evening by a loud rap at the door. Father went to the door and a gentleman came in and said, you wouldn't turn a man out of doors on such a night as this. Father told him no. The man had a load in his wagon. They drove to the shed and came in. It was Mr. Van Usen with a black man, his wife, and three children escaping from slavery. They stayed until morning when Henry went and carried them to Mr. Bottom's house. He did not want to go for he had carried one group before this week. She closed this letter with, please burn this as soon as you read it. Let no one see it. Jane. Ray says the letter gives us a glimpse into one small leg of a family's journey, from the Hicks Farm in Bennington to the Bottom Farm in Shaftesbury. It also shows us that... This was a family affair. 
wives and children are involved. In this case, um, Henry, the teenage boy, does not want to take this family the next leg of the journey because he's already made such a journey. You know, this is the antebellum abolition equivalent of having to mow the lawn, you know, and Henry doesn't want to do it. All told, Ray found documentation for 29 fugitives passing through Vermont between the 1830s and the 1850s. But he says those numbers are really shaky. On one hand, there are not that many, though many more than I've been able to track down. Of course, in terms of oral history, in terms of tradition, one person or out of one moment, the myth may kind of locate in a given town. And this brings us back to Brandon. There's nothing from Brandon in Category A of Ray's report, where we have the best evidence. But less substantiated activity in town does show up in Categories B, C, and D. And one of those sites was the crown jewel of Joan Thomas's walking tour. The Marsh House Mansion, which is on Pearl Street. Kevin Thornton and another Brandon history buff named Blaine Cliver took me to see it. Oh, wow, it's so it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. The man who built the house, Rodney V. Marsh, was a high-profile abolitionist in Vermont. This massive Greek Revival house was finished in 1853, and it has a very special reputation. You know, there's rumors that there was a tunnel. This is Hoyt Gahagan. He's the fifth owner of the Marsh House. But we haven't actually found the tunnel. I know a lot of people have tried to, but there's parts in the foundation wall where it has been patched. So whether there was a tunnel there at some point, we're not sure. Joan Thomas says she saw the tunnel when she was a young girl. She used to babysit for the family that lived in the Marsh House. Down cellar, there was a big hole. So one day... The oldest boy was always coming home from school and going down there with his friends and playing. Well, I went down one day because it was pretty quiet down there. And they had gone through this hole, and they were in this tunnel. Where would that have been a tunnel to? Uh, across the street, there's several houses. Um, and behind those houses, there's a very s- steep bank. And that tunnel went down to the railroad tracks. And so basically the thought was is that they would get off the train and come up the ravine on the other side of the street into the basement of those houses. The tunnel also went across the road there. And then across the street underground and into the basement of this house, and then they would hide in this house. What do you guys think about that theory? Well, that doesn't make much sense to me because you'd have to dig a pretty good tunnel and it'd be easier just to run across the street. That's what we heard when we moved into the house. That, oh, yeah, there was a tunnel that went to that house over there. And, and, but, you know. Yeah, I think the Underground Railroad as a metaphor is too powerful because, because it makes people think. Kevin and Blaine are very skeptical of this story and many others that gave rise to Brandon's Underground Railroad tour. But even though Hoyt's not sure about his house, he's open to other stories. Oh, I think this whole town was engaged in it. I really do. And this is the power of oral history. Yes, sometimes it veers into rumor and exaggeration. The Marsh House is probably a good example. But not all historians are dismissive of it. Not even Ray Zerbliss. Rather than have people simply shut up, you know, I'd rather have people tell the stories and bring them up and pass them on to their kids. And then we in the present or or the future can look at the cases and, and make our own determination. 
This is why Ray included places like the Marsh House in his big report. The house has no hard records that we know of, but it's had these stories swirling around it for so long. With all the smoke, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of fire. And, of course, they're feel-good stories, too. They say something about uh, how we wish to imagine ourselves. The Underground Railroad has proven to be a sturdy vehicle for people to feel good about themselves, particularly white folks um, sort of patting themselves on the back. Because, right, a lot of stories, at least in Vermont, have been passed through generations of mostly white people. But Dr. Cheryl LaRoche, whom we heard from earlier, says oral histories are an important part of her efforts to surface African-American stories in Underground Railroad history. I say that that is a research component, that we do not dismiss these things, learn how to use oral histories responsibly, take them seriously. She says this goes back to the fact that African-Americans often couldn't record their stories. If we go back to this inequality to access to literacy, first you legislate a people into being unable to read or write, and then you render the primary source of their information gathering, oral, uh, inaccurate, unstable, and not credible. And so we're hamstringed on two ends. So how do we overcome these obstacles? How do we get around them? And how do we learn to look at the Underground Railroad uh, from a different angle? And Cheryl says based on little clues she sees in Ray Zerblis's report, there's potential for more research into the African-American narrative in Vermont. You might not have the same type of network, which is a, a loose, I'm using that term very loosely, let's say connectedness that we might see in other places. But I would be willing to bet that you have a very powerful narrative here of African-American involvement. All right, so where are we heading into now? We are going into At the end of my tour of Brandon, Kevin Thornton and Blaine Cliver bring me to one last spot with some important history. Bob, we're here. The Baptist Church. It's the locus of anti-slavery in Brandon. The Brandon Anti-Slavery Society met here for years. The Vermont Anti-Slavery Society had its convention here. Their activity, starting in the 1830s, is well documented. Organizing, arranging speakers, women would do things like knit mittens for runaway slaves in Canada. They'd petition constantly. And Kevin says they made a difference. It's just that meetings and petitions don't make for great stories. So they take a back seat to the Underground Railroad. What they did wasn't the dramatic stuff of hiding people in basements or anything like that, which you didn't need to do in Vermont. And they weren't just in Brandon. Over here. Rogue Bee Museum has an entire exhibit devoted to the abolitionist movement. Again, Jane Williamson. They boycotted. They published hundreds of newspapers. They spoke out. They understood that if you want to make change in a democratic society, you have to change public opinion. And they did. You know, they started in the early 1830s, and by the time of the Civil War, public opinion had changed enormously. And Jane says the reason the Robinsons helped fugitive slaves on the Underground Railroad is because they were part of this movement. And that legacy is something we really want to honor. I mean, the issues that the Robinsons worked at have not gone away. I think racism is just remarkably resilient. 
You can pass laws and make changes that cut it off here and cut it off there, but it's like water, you know? It worms around, it finds another way, and that's what it, it just keeps doing that. And it's a big deal right now. Dr. Cheryl LaRoche says that's why history is so important, because it helps us understand the present. If you had a deep knowledge of African-American history, nothing that is happening today would surprise you in the least. One would know that our country and its promises have yet to be fulfilled, or, or let's say are partially fulfilled, and have, we have a long way to go. Thanks to all our listeners who shared their curiosity for this show. Carly Krolick, Becca Golden, Jesse Webster, and Joan Sterner. As always, thanks for listening to the show this month. We have further reading on the Underground Railroad up at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from Local First Vermont and from VPR members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Editing this month by Henry Epp and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. And a very special thanks to Oliver Riskin Coots for help with research. We'll be back next month. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.